This ain't no ham on rap, pal. What the hell are you doing? Saving your life. I would have been here sooner, but I was thinking of that ham on rye line. You think I can't take him? Now you probably scared the other ones away. What up? Headhunters, Nimrod. They don't travel alone. You're always the stupid idiot. You take lessons. I took lessons. A teacher living in rural Pennsylvania faces her past as a government assassin. Listen as we talk about scholars who decode anagrams, easy jokes about New Jersey, and James's white whale on eBay. Then we find out if the long kiss goodnight stands the test of time. Time. James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? James says gladiator with the blood Alan says as a father blah blah It's the test of time James and Alan have their say The movies you love still hold up today? Test of time James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Hello, everyone, and welcome to, once again, the Test of Time podcast. I'm James Brief, and joining me, as always, is my co-host, my friend, my buddy, Alan Noah. That's me! Hello, James. How are you today? I'm good. I'm in Long Island tonight. I came all the way out here for this podcast. Sometimes I come to your place, sometimes you come to my place. It's nice having you here. The dogs barked at you for like 20 minutes. Sorry about that. There's more gazebos here than in my apartment. That is true. We do have a lot more gazebos. One. We have one. Infinitely more. Because you have zero and I have one. Correct. I I mean, I just don't want people to think that like I'm swimming in gazebos over here. You do collect them. Right now, your collection is just starting. (laughs) It was here when we bought the house. It is nice on a night kind of like tonight, actually, where it's like warm, but buggy. And you want to like be outside, but... You don't want to have, like, the mosquitoes eating you alive. You go in the gazebo, it's screened, and you can have a nice meal outside and not get uh, eaten up by mosquitoes. You know what? Maybe this podcast should just be about gazebos and all of the great things about them. You know what we could do that hasn't been discussed yet in podcasts? What? True crime. <laughs> I bet there's a market for that. We should look into that. You know, um, I want to show you something. I got something really interesting in the mail recently. Now, Al, what is the oldest Nintendo publication that you know? Nintendo Power? You would think so. But before Nintendo Power, there was this. Do you remember this, Al? The Nintendo Fun Club. I feel like I heard of it, but I never got it. I didn't read it ever. Yeah, it was basically a, a precursor, and it actually had advertisements in it. It was like it was a totally free Nintendo newsletter that had tips and articles. Yeah, it was a Nintendo like self propaganda magazine. But eventually, they realized, oh, why are we giving out this free magazine? We could probably actually charge people to buy our advertising magazine, which was basically what Nintendo Power was, which was something that like every kid had. I didn't, but... um, You didn't? I didn't. I wanted it so bad. But uh, I don't know. Maybe my parents would have gotten it for me if I begged them for it. But I I never got it, but I would always read it at my friends' houses. Yeah, I loved that magazine. And that's pretty cool. I think that's a a neat thing you got there. So you're just going to, like, carry it around with you? 
No, I actually read through it, and, and I'll tell you what my white whale is on eBay. It's to find a copy of Nintendo Power Number 1, which was the only copy I ever had because all Nintendo Fun Club subscribers got the first issue for free, and I read that issue 500 times. Uh, I just read it cover to cover, so I feel like if I... Uh, if I get it, I know there'll be parts that will just trigger my memory, but I refuse to spend like $250 for it. So eventually I'm either going to find it at some garage sale or on eBay, I'll find it. I will pay under $50 for that. I will not dignify buying a, a magazine like that for you know hundreds of dollars. Yeah, that seems kind of crazy. The first issue I got of Nintendo Power had Batman, the video game, on the cover. I completely remember that. It had Jack Nicholson on it, right? I think it was Batman was in the in the foreground, and you saw the Joker, like the Jack Nicholson Joker, like in the background. Right, and I remember there was this one controversial cover. It was like Castlevania, and he's like holding up Dracula's head or something. It was like his decapitated head or something like that. Or his decapitated head was like on a table in front of uh, Simon Belmont. And it was like too scary because Nintendo's always supposed to be about like, you know, maybe pushing PG-13, but it doesn't really go into R. I don't remember that at all. That's interesting. But let's talk about this week's movie, The Long Kiss Goodnight. I asked you at the end of last week's show if you'd ever seen it before, and you said no. Had you heard of it? I'd heard of this film, but it was one of those films that kind of came and went. And I recently heard about it because I saw an article where someone was interviewing Samuel L. Jackson, and they asked him about his favorite movie roles. I think the list was like Jackie Brown, The Red Violin, and this film, and, and like one or two other films. And you realize they were all within like 1996 to 1998. Interesting. And, you know, I think this is the time when Samuel Jackson, who is this like struggling actor, because we've mentioned like he's in all these old films, like in a little cameo. But, you know, when you have one line in an Eddie Murphy film, you don't make the big buck in coming to America. You maybe make, you know, your scale, you know, $600 or something. And then Samuel Jackson goes back to, you know, being a starving actor. Right. This is around the time a Pulp Fiction came out in 94 and then Die Hard with a Vengeance. And he's really starting to become a movie star. And watching this film, you can tell sometimes when people are having a fun time making a film, there's something about Samuel Jackson. And probably it's a little biased based on that article I read, but he is having a lot of fun fun making this film. And then I saw him something randomly that Rennie Harlan, the director of this film, he thinks this is the most fun he ever had making a film as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know if I saw this movie when it first came out, but I remember having a conversation with my friend Steve Kofsky about it. He follows the movie industry and the movie business and like, you know, the, the little behind the scenes things. And he was fascinated by this movie because the writer of the movie, Shane Black, was paid $4 million for the screenplay. And that was unheard of at the time. That was like shocking that this guy was paid so much for this script. And people were intrigued by that. Steve was intrigued by that. He's like, what is it about this script that makes it so amazing? And the movie was sort of like positioned as like a thinking person's action movie. Like it's an action flick with like guns and explosions, but like it's smart. And of course, the title, The Long Kiss Goodnight, 
doesn't give you any indication that that's what this movie is about. I thought when I told you that we were going to do this movie, you were going to be like, oh, is this like a sappy romantic movie? You didn't ask that. I'll give you credit. But yeah, it's not at all what you would think just from the title. No, no, I I vaguely remember that this was an action film. This film does not start out as an action film. And I did, like you said last week, I did not uh, read anything about it. I just knew something. It was like action-y. But the film definitely starts uh, not that way. It stars a small town mother, PTA member and school teacher named Samantha Kane, uh, played by Gina Davis. And she's this woman in her mid-30s. But the thing is, she can only remember the last eight years of her life due to a rare form of amnesia. And after getting into a car accident and hitting her head, she begins to recover memories of her earlier life, when it turns out she was an assassin for the U.S. government. At the same time, the government is after Samantha, trying to kill her while attempting to create a false flag attack on U.S. soil. Now it's up to Samantha and her reluctant private investigator Mitch to foil their plans and clear their names. So... As I recall, this movie was something of a flop. The way I remembered it, it was because of the title that people didn't know it was an action movie and they thought it was like a romantic movie. Well, it is a terrible title. I'll give it that. Um, but I would say that this film has more to do with another film that came out the year this came out, 1996, also starring Gina Davis and her husband at the time, uh, Rennie Harlan, the director. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yes, I do. The pirate movie Cutthroat Island. Yeah. You know, back then, people really liked uh, a movie that cost like $100 million to make and was a flop. Waterworld. Um, I remember in 97, they were talking about over and over how Titanic was this $100 million film that was supposed to be released in July and then was delayed until December because, oh, this is going to be a disaster and James Cameron's going to go down finally. And, you know, Cutthroat Island was one of those that actually was a huge flop. And, you know, it really put a dent in Gina Davis's career because she had been huge. Uh, sure. She had done Thelma and Louise and The Fly and a league of their own Mm -hmm. and you know she had been uh, nominated for you know awards and she was huge and then she has two big time flops and and then i remember after this this is still when there was like movie actors and tv actors and movie actors do not go to television unlike today maybe like 98 99 there was an abc drama do you remember this uh, drama called commander in chief it was in the 2000s yeah it was like it was sometime shortly after this and it was like Gina Davis starring as a woman president and it only lasted like a year and I just remember thinking like nothing's really going well for Gina Davis and I always liked her in the early 90s but I think she just got a couple bad flops in a row and that convinced the industry perhaps that she was not bankable yeah it sucks because she is really really good in so many movies and I think she's really good in this movie and It does sort of suck that she was in two movies directed by her then husband and then they both flopped and like, yeah, maybe just don't work with 
that guy anymore and they divorced soon after and I don't think they made any more movies. One of the things that they were both apparently passionate about was making these action movies with a female lead and like trying to show the world that like action stars can be women, which is awesome. And Gina Davis is an awesome action star in this movie. I've never seen Cutthroat Island. Maybe at some point we'll we'll do it on the podcast. But like she's good in this role. And it's a noble endeavor. It just didn't work out for her and, and uh, her career in the, the years after, which really sucks. Right. Uh, this film had a $65 million budget. $4 billion of that was to the screenplay alone. And the movie opened at number three with $9 million, on its way to $33 million, $95 million worldwide. So it was a flop. And, you know, last week we reviewed a film, uh, Zoolander, that was beaten by a Michael Douglas film, uh, Don't Say a Word. I'll never tell. But um, it was a late weekend. It opened with $9 million. And the number one film had $9.2 million. Ooh, you know, just missed it. But it was another Michael Douglas film. It was Michael Douglas and Val Kilmer. It's them and a lion. I don't know. It's a movie apparently based on a true story, a film called The Ghost in the Darkness. You ever heard of it? No, I don't think so. That doesn't ring any bells. Yeah, it's about like a man-eating tiger that was devastating a town. And I think these two like hunters go after it. And I think it's a true story. Oh, interesting. Okay. No, I don't remember that at all. Well, that'll be for another time. I guess so. But for today, we're going to start with a movie with a long three-minute credit sequence. Oh, geez. And that really bothered you? It did, but it was one of these things where there were all these, I could tell there were all these clues about something. Like, if you pay a lot of attention or if you watch the opening credits after the film, you'll realize they're telling you a lot of things. And I'm like, does she work for the FBI or something? Because they showed like an ID badge. It reminded me of the beginning of Seven, if you've ever seen Seven. Yeah, of course. They show a lot of clues in the beginning of the opening credits that you don't realize are clues yet. Yeah, I think it's just like government documents. I wasn't really like scanning it for clues or anything. It was too long. Fine. But the movie starts off with voiceover, which I really don't think it needs. And this movie, I think throughout, does a pretty damn good job of not like holding your hand and explaining everything in a really like obnoxious talking down to the audience kind of way. And it does that in the beginning voiceover, which really does bug me. Uh, But it tells you the whole thing where this woman, Samantha Kane, she has amnesia. She woke up on a beach in New Jersey and she doesn't remember anything about her old life. But she was pregnant at the time and now she's got a great boyfriend and she's a teacher and she's living life and she's happy. And like you don't need the voiceover to, to tell you all of that. There's actually a really cute moment later on when the daughter is talking to her friends and one of the friends like, oh, her mom's an amnesiac and she doesn't remember things. And then Sam comes in and is like, all right, uh, I need you to help me in the kitchen and you need to help me soon because I can't remember where it is. Ha 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 And it's like a cute little joke. Like, there you go. You get it. She's an amnesiac. You didn't need the, the voiceover. Right. It reminded me of someone who's disabled in some way and, and just joking about their disability. Because it seemed like one of those things like, oh, you wouldn't talk about it. And yeah, she's, she's being lighthearted about it. Like, oh, your goofy mother who has no idea who she is. Right. It's funny. And Sam Kane, like, you know, her name's Samantha. That's an anagram for amnesiac. Mm. Sam Kane. 
Although that doesn't really make sense because as we find out, Sam Kane is an ID that she made earlier before she was an amnesiac. But I guess it's like one of these just little like screenplay, like this is one for the scholars in a hundred years. Sure. I, uh, scholars who like figure out anagrams? No, who are like analyzing the film. Oh, okay. No, I think in, in a version of the script, her name was Sam Kane because of that. And then they changed it and made it like an ID that she had come up with. Ah, uh, okay. But we also meet this private investigator, Mitch, who's played by Samuel L. Jackson. And I remember this line from the scene where he's like arresting a guy and he's saying, you're assuming that I'm not going to shoot you. But when you make an assumption, you make an ass out of you and umption, which is like kind of like a dumb line on paper. And I'm sure it sounded really stupid when I said it. But when Samuel L. Jackson says it, it's great. I'm just going to say it right now. Every scene with Samuel L. Jackson is amazing. And there's parts where you don't see Mitch for a long time. And I'm wondering, can we get Mitch back in this film? Because he is so much fun to watch. And I love Samuel L. Jackson's mustache in this film. Mitch has a <laughs> great mustache. You know, I just love it how he breaks in. And it's kind of a Pulp Fiction, almost rip-off, I'm not sure. But, you know, when they bust in to uh, Brad's apartment in Pulp Fiction, this one he busts into a guy who's sleeping with a prostitute. And he's basically saying he's the police. He's going to expose him. And he basically is like, all right, I guess if you pay me off. And it turns out the prostitute is in on the scam with him right were they in the middle of having sex i don't think so i think they were like going to but he also then like insults her even though it's his like co-worker he's like i can tell judging by your taste in women here that you don't have a lot of money like like so like unnecessarily demeaning to this woman who he knows and likes and works with but yeah i i do agree that that he's great in this movie yeah, and we find out that like he's scamming this man. He's just a low-life private investigator. And one of the people he's basically scamming as well is Samantha Kane, because we find out that Samantha Kane has hired like a dozen private investigators to try to find out who she is. And, you know, I guess today, Test of Time would have been, you know, posted on social media. Somebody went to high school with this woman. And, right. you know, you would have found out who she is. But it turns out that uh, Mitch's secretary is like, oh, yeah, I actually got like a hit on that Samantha Kane case. And you, know, you could tell from Mitch, he's like, oh, we were just like taking that woman's money and not really doing anything with it. But somehow they got some old stuff from her past life. So he decides to take a trip up to see her. Right. And meanwhile, it's Christmas, by the way. And so she and her boyfriend are having like a Christmas party. There's an older guy there who's drunk and she decides to give him a ride home. And on the way, they crash into a deer. And then she has like this flash from her like previous life. She kills the deer with like her bare hand because it's suffering and she like snaps its neck. And that's pretty weird because she's just a mild-mannered, like, teacher. And how did she know how to, like, snap the deer's neck? And she's kind of out of it when she's in the hospital and when she goes home. I did notice that they never tell you what happened to, like, the old guy who she was driving home. It seemed like he probably would have died in that car fire. I think they do show a shot of the car completely engulfed in flames. And it looked almost like this dazed Samantha 
could have saved him, but kind of looks like, nah, I'm just going to like pass out right here. I didn't interpret it that way. I interpreted that she killed the deer and then was like stumbling and then just passed out. Like she would have saved him if she could have. But it is weird that no one ever mentions like, oh, yeah, that poor guy who died. It's a little strange. Yeah, yeah, but she um, she does wake up and she finds out when she's back home that she's cutting some carrots and she's really good with a knife. So she's actually ecstatic because she's like, I'm remembering, I think I'm a chef. And it's actually done really well because I was pretty sure she wasn't a chef, but I didn't know because I knew nothing about this film. So I was like, that's interesting. She's like learning this thing because chefs can do amazing things with knives. And she's cutting this carrot like a food processor. And then she like throws a tomato in the air and then throws a knife in the air and basically stabs the tomato, which stabs the wall. You know, it's one of those things like chefs can't really do that. But she does say the line that she says a couple more times. She goes, uh, chefs can do that. Right. It is funny. Also, that's another thing that they don't pay off later. Like, we get it. She's a government assassin and that's why she can do all those things with knives. But like... Cutting the carrots and stuff? Like, that's a little bit weird. Like, I would have expected a throwaway line of like, oh, we had you undercover as a chef in one mission, and then we had you doing this. You know, like, I feel like they should have referenced that in some small way. You know, sometimes you're waiting for the line. It happens and you think you're so smug because you predicted the line. Like, there's a line later when she rescues the the daughter at the end. And I was like, here it comes. She's going to say, chefs can do that. And she doesn't. I was like, no, here it is. Like, she (laughs) saved her. Like, mommy, you saved my life. Yeah, chefs can always save someone out of a a bomb stuck in a truck. You know, that's what chefs do. That would have been a terrible line there. I thought our chefs can chefs can do that would be a great line. No, hey, that's terrible. Um, how many uh, screenplays have you sold for four million dollars? Zero. Oh, uh, let's let's just leave it there. No follow up questions. No follow up questions. How many let's have go. you sold for four million dollars? Um, how many theme songs for podcasts have I written that people from around the world have written in and said they find incredibly catchy? I can only think of one, but I guess it's one for me. How, how many have you written now? So the question was, how many $4 million screenplays have you sold? And the answer is zero. Yes, zero $4 million screenplay, uh, one amazing uh, co-wrote podcast theme song. Fine. Uh, While all this is happening, there's this guy in jail named One-Eyed Jack, and he only has one eye, and he sees Samantha in this, like, TV footage because she was Mrs. Claus in like a Christmas parade and it's on some local news channel where the anchor is talking about how hot Mrs. Claus is, by the way. And he gets really mad. He's like pissed off that this woman is alive and he apparently breaks out of jail. This other bad guy named Timothy gets a phone call about how this woman is alive and we better keep an eye out for her. But then while Samantha's at home, this one-eyed guy shows up and he's there to kill her. He's mad about his missing eye. And the fight is pretty amazing. He like takes a shotgun and like blows a hole through the wall. And then Sam chucks her daughter out of the house through that hole in the wall directly into like a pile of pillows in her treehouse, which is conveniently right there. I thought that was really cool. Yeah, yeah, it was great. And she winds up killing One-Eyed Jack. 
And just as she uh, kills him, Mitch winds up showing up. Samuel Jackson is approaching the house and the police are like, freeze! <laughs> and, you know, it totally stands up, unfortunately. Yes, exactly. And the, and the daughter is like, no, no, he's a good guy. He helped me. But the cops see the black guy going into the house. And so they immediately think he's a suspect. But he's not, and he's a good guy. And Mitch gives Samantha all of this stuff that he found, and she wants to go and figure out who she was because now there are bad guys showing up to her house, and she's killing them with her bare hands, and that's a little odd. So she really wants to investigate, and she leaves her key that she has, which is like this thing that she had when she washed up on the beach and she doesn't know what the key's for, but she leaves it with her daughter. Uh, She tells the daughter to call her on her mobile phone that she has, which is pretty cool for 1996. She tells her to leave a candle burning in the window that'll light her way home. And she says goodbye. And she goes off with Mitch to find out about her old life. And this first clue is a phone number, and it's for Dr. Waldman, who's played by Brian Cox, who I see that guy, and I just think of Succession. Do you watch Succession? No, but Brian Cox is a fantastic actor. You know what he's fa- you know what role he famously had before it wound up being one of the most iconic roles of all time? No, what? He was Hannibal Lecter in Manhunter. Right, 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 right. Yeah, that does sound familiar. Uh, you should watch Succession, though. It's really good. Cool. Season three, coming soon. Uh, But he's like, oh, we have to meet. And so they set up these plans to meet at a train station. And Mitch is going in there with a gun. Yeah, and it's a good thing he does because Nathan's like, I'll meet you. And um, when they meet, there's some other guy. Because it turns out the government was was uh, tapping that phone. So they're like, all right, we know to meet at 11 a.m. at the train station. So some random guy shows up as like, he's like, I'm Nathan. And Samantha does this great move where she realizes it's not uh, Nathan. Because she sees the guy has like a gun in a folded up newspaper or something. And she dives and tackles Mitch to like take cover. But as she tackles Mitch, she reaches into Mitch's pocket and finds the gun and shoots this guy as they're falling in the tackle. I thought that was a great move. Yeah, like shooting while the gun is still in his pocket. It's awesome. Yeah, she's probably also shooting guns sideways, which is extra cool. I mean, I think that's not the most important thing, but sure, fine. Uh, They're like being chased by all these bad guys. They're upstairs now. And like she shoots out the window. And then while they're jumping three stories down, she shoots the ice below because there was a sign when they were outside that said like ice is thin, do not skate. And so she knew that she could like shoot a hole in it and they would go underwater and they would escape. It's very quick. But it's also just like, it's like the right amount of bullets and she uses the one gun to shoot the window and then uses the other gun to shoot the hole in the ice. And it it feels like this would be correct if you knew about guns and shooting windows and ice, which I definitely do not. But it, it makes you feel like this is accurate. I agree. It's the perfect amount of physics where you go, 
Okay, but realistically, they probably still landed after like a five-story fall. They probably land feet first onto a sheet of ice and break both their legs and possibly die right there. But this reminds me a little bit of a bad movie. Uh, it was Triple X Two, Triple X State of the Union, where Ice Cube jumps out of a train at the end over a river, and he jumps like this thing is like twenty stories tall that he's uh, falling out of, and you know it's one of those things where he's gonna kill himself and the water because the surface tension but he fires an rpg at the water like right before he hits it so it's very like splashy and he broke the surface tension and falls right into the middle of this wave so the you as the audience go okay i guess that's accurate way to fall and it reminded me of that where i'm just like you know what movie physics i'm gonna allow this okay fair enough I feel like you're saying surface tension a lot. But that's what it is. It's the hydrogen bonds, Al. Okay. Uh, But the real Dr. Nathan Waldman shows up, and Mitch and Sam go with him, and he tells them that Sam was a government assassin. She killed people, and she was a a counter-assassin, which is interesting. I was like, I kind of wanted them to explain more about what a counter-assassin is. I assume that means she kills assassins. I guess so. But, like, I I don't know. I thought that was an intriguing word, and they kind of don't really go into that too much. Yeah, I I mean, but this is the scene that we've been waiting for for, like, 45 minutes of, like, what is the backstory of this woman? And I have to say, it's a little confusing to me. Just kind of wound up being vague. She was in an assassin group, and now we must kill her. Because she kind of was in the wrong place at the wrong time. She messed up another mission. I didn't understand what she did, but she did something that we don't find out yet. She winds up getting shot in the head by one of her own guys. Like one of the U.S. uh, It's not the U.S. guys? No. No, no. it's it's One-Eyed Jack? Yeah, One-Eyed Jack tries to rape her. But it's the U.S. government that totally turns their back on her. Well, kind of. It's Mr. Perkins, who was her handler, who is now working with the bad guys. Right, because she now that she's starting to get her her memory back, she's saying to Mitch, she's like, yeah, I'm just going to like report to Mr. Perkins and go in for debriefing, and I'm just going to go right back to being, uh, she found out her name is Charlie something. I mean... I didn't find this confusing at all. I thought it was pretty clear that it was just like this one guy in the government who used to be a good guy and is now a bad guy. Yeah, I I just thought it was just unclear what she did, that she messed up Project Daedalus, or I I don't remember what it was, some arms deal. You know, the thing is, it's not that important what, what she did to mess it up. The thing was, is she was supposed to kill this guy, Daedalus, who was a head bad guy. And she didn't. She didn't have the opportunity to kill him. Uh, and she's not even sure who he is. Because after Waldman tells them that she was this assassin, they're like, yeah, we don't believe you. And they give him the slip. And then she goes to find her old fiance because there was a postcard written about this old lover of hers that uh, Mitch found. But... It was all like in code and saying that she loved him and he was a fiance really meant that he was the target. So when she goes and connects with this guy and he seems like this kind of gee golly shucks guy in the country who's like chopping his own wood. No, no, that wasn't her old boyfriend. That was Daedalus. That was the guy she was supposed to kill. I feel like Daedalus is a code name in a lot of spy films. Isn't it like Project Daedalus? Like, isn't that in other films too? 
I can't think of any other movies it's been in, but it definitely sounds like a code name and not like this guy's real name. He's just a white guy. Like Daedalus sounds like a, a Greek name, maybe? Ah, Project Daedalus was a study conducted between 1973 and 1978 by the British Interplanetary Society to design a plausible interstellar probe. Sounds boring. Yeah, maybe to you. And other people, because you didn't know, you had to Google it, so it clearly wasn't that interesting for you. Um, Once they realize that, no, Daedalus is the bad guy, Daedalus captures Mitch and Sam, uh, or Charlie, as she now knows is her real name. And Nathan. Yeah, well, we they never even see what they do to Nathan other than he's dead. He dies off screen, which is kind of a bummer because Brian Cox is cool. Yeah, I would have really liked to see Brian Cox's character have some redemption moment. He winds up drowning because the next scene is Timothy is torturing uh, Samantha. She's tied to this wheel and he keeps lowering the wheel underwater. And we see during these multiple scenes underwater that Brian Cox's Nathan character is also underwater. And presumably he had been tortured in the same way earlier. He's really only in the scene for one thing. And that's because he mentioned earlier that he hides a gun in his groin and that no one ever checks that because the men never want to check the guy's groin and she's able to grab a gun and escape but i would have liked him to go down a little better like he could have been like tell me where who she is or what she knows or and i'll let you live and he doesn't tell him and like you know i would have liked him to go down a little nobler he deserved a better ending yeah or even just an on-camera death yeah yeah something like that or you know like i'm gonna shoot one of you you're not gonna shoot any of us and you know kills uh, nathan to prove the situation serious i agree that he should have been killed on camera uh but it is kind of badass when daedalus like lowers her under the water and then she comes up holding the gun because she's also like having these flashes of her previous life and she flashes back to the night when she was Kind of, sort of, almost killed when One-Eyed Jack tried to rape her, and she took out his eye, but he was able to shoot her, and she fell off this cliff and fell into the water, and now she's sort of, like, reborn, and she grabs the gun, like you said, from Nathan's pants, and she kills Daedalus, she rescues Mitch, who is, like, held in some other part of this compound or whatever. And I like the small details in there. Like when she's able to free herself because she's tied with these big burlap ropes to the wheel, they show blood. Like I thought it's small and it's not very graphic. They don't zoom in on it. But she's bleeding as she has to rip herself out of these burlap ropes. I really like that small detail. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then she goes to Atlantic City with Mitch, and she gives herself a makeover. She Makeover! Cuts... <laughs> I mean, it's not like that kind of a makeover. She becomes incredibly sexy after this. Like, Gina Davis looks like a PTA school teacher at the beginning of this film. With that, like, oh, gee shucks, like, curly brown hair. And then she looks like Charlize Theron in uh, Atomic Blonde. Right, and that's, like, the version of herself that she's had, like, little flashes of before that in the movie. She's not metamorphosizing into something new. It seems like she's returning to her old self here. This is the normal Charlie. And Samantha, was we find out, was the fake uh, undercover identity that she made to try to get involved with Daedalus. Like, who is the real fake and who is the real true persona? That's like a theme of the movie. And I 
feel like they could have maybe explored that a little bit more. Like when Mitch is talking to her and he's like, you know, you should call your kid. It's like two days until Christmas. And she's like, that's not my kid. I never wanted a kid. That's Samantha's kid. Like she's making the distinction between the two of them. But of course, they are one and the same. I loved that part. And they don't explore that again, unfortunately. Because she's like, yeah, I'm just going to go back and debriefing. I'm going to go right back to work. And I'm like, but you're a mother. And, you know, you as a father must have been thinking that. And uh, they don't explore that again. I think that is weird. But uh, then she calls Mr. Perkins. Like I said, she's trying to go in for a debriefing. But it turns out that they want to kill her. Because in a big twist, he is working alongside with this Timothy guy. Right. Perkins was a good guy. He's still working in the government. We see him, like, talking to the president at one point and, like, the president is like, you guys in the intelligence community, you guys have messed things up and you killed this woman or you thought she was dead and you always ask for more funding. Well, you know what your funding is? Two words, health care. And I was like, wait, what? Like in the 90s, was that something that people thought the government was spending too much money on health care? Like we didn't have subsidized health care then, nor now. I was just kind of confused by that line. I have no idea what that line meant. But um, she winds up taking out uh, three dudes in an alley. It's really cool. I like that scene. Good action scene. Yeah. And then they're like going to leave New Jersey. And <laughs> Mitch has a line. He's like, you know, others have tried and failed to get out of New Jersey. The entire population, in fact. I thought that was very funny because I always think it's funny to make fun of New Jersey. Sorry, any listeners that live in or are from New Jersey. Oh, yeah, my girlfriend's from New Jersey, and we watch this film together. And it's one of those lines that I will look at her, and she'll kind of go, oh, it's because it's so easy. A New Jersey joke is it's so easy. <laughs> it's so easy and so funny. And again, delivered perfectly by Samuel L. Jackson. What happens next is, is one of these things that is completely unnecessary in the film. And it could be one of those things that eh, they should have just cut it. But it actually, it's a cute little gag that works. And now that uh, Samantha, or Charlie, is completely back to her old uh, self, you know, when she was just you know, helpless Samantha, she needed Mitch to help her. And she's like, please help me like while I send my daughter and boyfriend to safety. But now the roles are reversed, and she keeps saving Mitch. And, she's, and Mitch is like, I don't even know why you need me anymore. And she's like, you're right, I don't need you. And while the car's moving, she kicks him out of the car. And there's this weird part where uh, Mitch is just lying on the ground. And I'm like, is he hurt? Like, why isn't he getting up? Because he now realizes that uh, as badass as she's acting, she's not a bad person. She's not going to ditch him. And what he's doing is he's waiting there because he knows she's going to come back. And she does like a minute later. She swings around the block and picks him up again. Yeah, it is unnecessary, but it's just kind of cool. And like, it's a cool shot of him like lying on the ground, like smoking his cigarette waiting for her to come back and there's another scene that comes up next that shouldn't work but strangely does and even to the point where while it was happening i was saying to my girlfriend this is so stupid but i really like it she comes back to her uh, old town she sees the bad guys like across this lake 
And she winds up putting on some ice skates and she skates across this ice lake. And it's just a ridiculous chase. Why? Like, because it's just like she has no way to get to them, but she has ice skates and she skates across the ice and snipes a moving truck. And it's ridiculous. Ridiculous, but somehow works. I, I think it's just just the same way that uh, Gina Davis is surprisingly believable as a very good baseball player in a league of their own. She's very believable to me because she's a great actress. I, I I did believe this Jekyll and Hyde switch in her brain it was very believable to me. So for some reason, the skating and sniping and successfully taking out a moving truck full of bad guys worked for me. Well, I mean, they do establish the ice skating earlier in the movie when she's with her daughter and she's teaching her how to ice skate. And it's not that different from every James Bond movie where he just like, okay, James Bond needs to get to that bad guy over there. So he puts on skis or he puts on a jetpack or he puts on a whatever and is able to go after him. How does he know how to use that thing? Because he's a spy. Okay, same thing here. Yes, when James Bond's skiing down the mountain and turns around backwards and fires three bullets and kills three people on skis and snowmobiles. Yes, that is equally ridiculous. I get what you're saying. You know, funny you say it, because this is around when Goldeneye comes out, but we had had some not-so-great Timothy Dalton uh, Bond films, and I feel like with this and The Saint that we reviewed a few months ago, they were really looking for, like, a new kind of James Bond. Yeah, and I mentioned Triple X before, so a few years after this, they would find, like, a young person's action James Bond. I think they were really trying to look for this replacement. Yeah, I think so. Every now and again, there's, like, some talk online about, like, could there ever be a female James Bond? And some people say, no, of course not. James Bond has to be a guy. And some people say, of course it could be a woman. Why not? I feel like this movie is, like, a great example of, like, yeah, a woman could be a totally badass spy. Well, I, I think there's plenty of films that show that. And sure. The, the argument that people will not see a female action film, it's really proven that if you make a good action film and perhaps not have the movie follow another director star film that was a notorious flop from that year, then people will see the action film. I mean, I thought Black Widow was also a great spy action movie led oh, yeah. by a woman. Oh, yeah, and Salt, and there have been a lot of films in the last 20 years that I think have really shown that uh, people are willing to watch an action film. Uh, Jessica Jones' series was incredibly popular, but I think Hollywood is at least going in the right direction here. Right. But the reason that this whole, like, crazy skating thing happened in Sam's hometown was because she went back to get the key that she had left with her daughter because that key is how she's going to get out of the country. There's a safe deposit box somewhere. But while she's in town, she doesn't interact with her daughter and Timothy, the bad guy, kidnaps her. So Timothy calls her and is like, I have your daughter. You're going to play ball. You're going to come to me. You're going to do whatever I say. And so they don't know how to find out where Timothy is. So they go to the phone company and they like hold everyone at the phone company hostage so they can trace the call. And none of this stands the test of time. Just like the idea of like, let's go to the phone company. They can help us. Like that's kind of like, 
eye roll worthy now. At least in the 90s and 80s, you can get away with someone banging on the keyboard and saying, I'm in. And then you know they've broken into whatever account they needed to do. It's the same way that there was just this belief that the phone company could press whatever thing they needed to and trace the call. And and sometimes it would be like, Keep them on for 30 seconds as we see the map. We're getting closer. We're almost there. And they hang up, like in the fugitive, in the line of fire. But that was like the authorities who were doing that, not the phone company. I can believe it more that like the FBI has that kind of technology than like some random phone company office in like the middle of upstate New York. But it still is the phone company that could do it. It's ultimately that the FBI gets to access this because it's the phone company's hardware. I mean, I agree with you that the random phone company may not be able to do that or that anyone can do what she's asking them to do. Right. But in 1996, it is believable that you can do that. And I agree with you too that today we'd kind of maybe maybe that's a little less believable. But I think in 96, there was was really nothing wrong with writing that back then. I totally agree that it was fine then. I'm just saying, like, watching it now, it's like, eh, none of this really works. Yeah, and speaking of something that uh, really, really uh, out of date, they wind up going to the, basically, the bad guy's base, and uh, Charlie and Mitch, uh, Samantha and Mitch, it's hard to tell what to call her here, but I'm going to call her Samantha. That's fine. I feel like now when she's like in badass spy mode, she's Charlie. Yeah, she could be either one. So Gina Davis and Mitch, they're captured. You get your classic, uh, the Bond villain reveals the whole plan. They're going to do a false flag attack at Niagara Falls, and they're going to blame it on the Muslims and kill 4,000 Americans and start a huge war for the defense contractors. And I was like... Holy shit, wait, when did this movie come out? They make a reference to uh, the 1993 World Trade Center bombing. Yeah. And of course, you know, we're, we're at the time of this recording, we're about 20 years out of the 2001 World Trade Center bombing. But a lot of people forget that there was a bombing in 1993 and it was in the garage and it was an attempt to take down the building. Yeah. And I think like half a dozen people died. Something like that, yeah. It was a terrorist attack on the World Trade Center that has become like a footnote in history because it didn't take the buildings down. And eight years later on 9-11, that is what happened. Do you remember the 93, how the terrorists were caught? I still remember that story. It was amazing. I don't remember. It was something along the lines of they, they like rented like a U-Haul van. And then I think they tried to get their deposit back for the van. Oh, okay. Something about a, a rental van sounds vaguely familiar. That's pretty stupid. Trying to get your $200 deposit back. You know, shouldn't you be like going to Mexico or going anywhere but the uh, place that can trace you back to the bombing? Yeah, that is dumb. Um, But yeah, I mean, like referencing the 93 World Trade Center bombing does feel like out of place. And also just like the government's in on this bombing operation because they need to get more funding because all of their funding is going to healthcare. Like, wait, what? Like, that doesn't make any sense. Oh, no, 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 Al. You've never heard of Operation Northwoods. What's Operation Northwoods? This was a real plan, apparently. The Department of Defense, like, wanted to do a false flag attack in, like, 
It was something like in Florida, the government was going to like murder like hundreds of Americans to make a false flag attack to start a war with Cuba. And Kennedy had stopped the whole thing and said, uh, no way, we're going to do it. So that's one of the reasons that they killed him. And it was one of those things, you know, it didn't have much like, you know, credence to this uh, crackpot conspiracy theory. Let's just say this movie did not make up that idea. Yeah, I get that. But the idea that they're doing it because the intelligence community needs more funding and the government spending too much money on health care? I just remember the mid-90s, there was this failed health plan by Hillary Clinton. That's mm-hmm. all I remembered about uh, First Lady Hillary Clinton at the time. But in the 90s, there's no bad guy, which means uh, probably a true thing. I'll bet the defense budget, like maybe it wasn't necessarily cut, but it didn't go up nearly as much as it did on September 12th, 2001. Right. I get that. Uh, and it's not the entire U.S. government is in on it. It's just Perkins and like his handful of followers. But regardless, the bad guy doesn't just kill Charlie and her daughter. He could just shoot them, but he doesn't. He leaves them in the freezer to freeze to death for some reason. I think they maybe were going to take their bodies and put them somewhere. And yeah, they're going to do something like that. Yeah, he's going to like leave her in Pennsylvania so that it'll just look like she's a crazy mom who killed her daughter and like they froze to death. Well, because it would be weird if there was a missing mother and daughter that show up in the middle of this bomb blast that's going to happen. And then that would kind of wind up connecting the dots. Like, what is this mild-mannered PTA mom have to do with this huge terrorist attack? And he do do something with her, but they don't really explain why he's not just kind of like... You know, shooting her in the head and leaving her on the side of a road somewhere. No, I mean, I think they do explain it because of that, but it just feels like he's doing the Bond villain thing where he's explaining his whole plot and then leaving her to slowly die while he goes to do something else where, of course, she's going to escape. Also, by the way, Timothy is the father of her daughter and she tells him that and he doesn't really care. I thought it was interesting because there's a look in his eye. Like, you think he might actually care for a second, but then he decides he doesn't, which makes him more of a of an evil villain. I did like it. I thought they would have done a little bit more with it, but I like that little twist. I did think one part was a little bad where uh, Gina Davis's character like tells him, like, it is your daughter. Look at her eyes. And the camera focuses on the girl's eyes who's obviously not the offspring of the actor Craig Bierko and Gina Davis. And you're supposed to go like, of course it's that man's daughter. But, I mean, it looks like it could realistically be her daughter, but it's not one of those like, oh my God, it is her daughter. You know, like, I didn't think it would work as well as you wanted it to work. I agree with that. Also, they're brown eyes. And brown eyes are great, but they're the most common eye color. So like if they were like, you know, an off hazel shade or something like that, that did match. I mean, that's an easy thing to fake in Hollywood, get some colored contact lenses. Yeah, you're right. It it doesn't totally work. And it is clever how she escapes because earlier we saw her and her daughter, they were in this basement and there was all this gasoline. And then we cut to them being captured. But what we didn't see was that she was smart and she filled her daughter's doll with gasoline. So then she 
makes it look like the doll is peeing, but it's really making this little like river of gasoline. And then she's trying to create a spark so that the whole thing will blow and she can't do it. But then the little girl has matches with her because she's been lighting the candle to light her way home, which she said way in the beginning of the movie. So, aha. You know, as a father, I want to ask you a question. As a father to a, to a young daughter, I feel like in the 90s, there was this obsession with marketing to little girls, dolls that peed. Do you remember that? It would be like, change the diaper and little Miss pees a lot. And was this a thing that continued? Did your daughter ever have like dolls that peed? Um, I do remember it from the 90s. I don't think my daughter ever had a doll that peed like a human doll. I do think she had like a toy cat or something that pooped. Like little poops came out of its butt, and I don't know what the point was. Yeah, it is weird. I guess it teaches kids about responsibility. It's weird. Little kids don't need to be, like, changing diapers, and it's—I I don't know. It's well, strange. they're playing house. I just remember in the 90s a strange, like, ultra-realistic fad of dolls. It is a weird thing. But, you know, they're escaping, and— Charlie tells her daughter to hide somewhere, and the daughter hides in this truck, but the truck is the bomb, so then Charlie and Mitch have to go after it, and it's a back-and-forth chase scene. Charlie's getting some bad guys, and she gets the truck, but then the truck's brakes are cut, and the truck basically ends up on this bridge between America and Canada, and Some of the bad guys are still after her. Some of the government guys are there who should be there to help, but they're not. They're there to make sure that the bomb goes off and everything goes according to Perkins' plan. The climactic showdown between Charlie and Timothy is pretty cool because Timothy's in a helicopter, like, shooting down at them. And she, like, grabs hold of, like, these Christmas lights and she, like— knock something out of the way so then she goes up and she shoots timothy in the helicopter and then she goes down and she goes back to mitch and her daughter in the car but the explosion happens on this bridge and it does not kill thousands of civilians like it was supposed to samantha slash charlie saves the day it did occur to me though that like from a cover story perspective wouldn't Perkins's plan still have kind of worked if this truck bomb went off on the Canadian-American border? Wouldn't that still, like, encourage the government to give more funding to the Defense Department or CIA or whatever? Yeah, in a realistic thing, all you need is some random, poorly filmed handy cam, camcorder footage of some guy in a, you know, Muslim-looking outfit saying, death to America, death to America, we're going to bomb you, and then just play that in the news, and everyone will go, oh, okay, there you go, that's it, and then false flag. But, I mean, here, an actual bomb thing did go off. Right, I'm saying that it just retroactively filmed some guy saying, like, death to America. And people go, okay, that was our guy. Yeah, but I feel like even if you don't have that, even if, like, the truth came out that it was this guy Perkins working with this guy Timothy, like, even still, then you would say, well, it's kind of insane that that happened and it almost went off in this town, so we should increase spending to whatever but it's still the happy ending uh the president calls charlie and thanks her and offers her a job in the government but she says no no i've got tests that i need to grade because she's a teacher she's samantha and she's off with her boyfriend and her daughter off in some remote farmhouse 
And then, like, there's a cricket chirping, and she, like, kills the cricket by, like, throwing a dagger into it. Like, uh, she's still an assassin. And then, like, Mitch is on Larry King, and he's famous, and he's happy, and his ex and his kid are proud of him. It's a happy ending. Everyone gets their way. But, James, do you think The Long Kiss Goodnight stands the test of time? We haven't mentioned it yet, but what's the obvious movie series that today you'd compare this film to? There's a lot of elements that are similar. Not James Bond? Close, close. Same Uh, initials. I don't know. Jason Bourne. Oh, right. Yeah, because of the whole amnesia thing. Yes. And was a secret assassin from the U.S. government and then wakes up and kind of just wants to go on with his life. But his old government uh, assassin team wants to kill him. And so he winds up having to kill all of them. There's a lot of stuff in this film that is Jason Bourne-esque. And, of course, the film comes after this, but the Robert Ludlum books, I believe, probably came earlier than this. I'm not sure. I'm not 100% on that. But there's a couple things that uh, kind of irked me on the film. One, the soundtrack, the score of this film. There is some really weird music in this film at really weird parts. I don't know if you noticed that, but there's some really weird, like, guitars at parts and, like, tense music when it shouldn't be tense. I I did not like the soundtrack in this film. I mentioned earlier that the exploring the part with the daughter, that uh, that Charlie had no interest in the daughter. I thought that was fascinating, but they don't do it again at all. I really thought there was going to be a part where uh, she got the keys back that the daughter had, and that's all she needed, and she was just going to leave her, and then the bad guys are about to kill the daughter. I don't care about her at all. But it turns out she does care. Yes, and it kind of shows me that like when she saw the daughter, she realized she loved her. I would have liked something a little bit better than that. I, I really thought it was very interesting that this woman had no interest in the daughter at all when she got her memory back. I thought that was a very intriguing uh, twist that they didn't really explore well. I don't know. I think at the end when they have like that moment where it's a callback to like their scene on the ice skating pond where the mom is passed out and the daughter's like come on get up life is pain you can do it i need you to get up right now i feel like you see like these callbacks to everything that happened before and you see them bonding when they're about to die and she's holding her i think there's there's some stuff there that's not the part i'm talking about that's fine because that is a callback to a part earlier i'm saying the part that charlie realizes she does want to save this daughter i thought that was a fascinating uh part that they didn't explore they did not give me a satisfying like return to her loving her daughter um I think that the switch, the identity switch, comes a little too late in the film for me. I feel like I had seen that poster before where she's a blonde, and she's a brunette, if I had to guess, more than half the film. I feel like it's a little late in the film that her transformation happens. That, that That's for me, at least. And in general, I do think the film's a little bit too long. The film is two hours, and there's a lot of, like, they almost got her, but she escaped, and they're very cool, but I think they could have eliminated at least one of those I do think the film's a little bit too long there Um, things I like about this film Samuel Jackson he is amazing in every scene he's in Brian Cox is always great Gina Davis I mentioned earlier it's a shame that her career like I don't think we ever see her again in a major film after something like this I don't know if you look at her her filmography is she in anything major Uh, I'm pulling it up right now hold on a second um I think her biggest hit after this was uh, Stuart Little. She was in those movies as like the mom and she had commander in chief. 
Yeah, she's been in some TV shows. She was on Grey's Anatomy. She was on Glow. But uh, I think she's focused more on like her activism now. That's like a bigger thing for her and like uh, gender equality in, in Hollywood and things like that. But it is a shame that we never got to really see Gina Davis again because I always liked her. There's one more film of, well, two more films. Obviously, Thelma and Louise we're going to review at some point. But do you know the other film that we absolutely must review of her? It's a classic 80s film. Earth Girls Are Easy? No, I was not thinking of that. The Fly? Uh, Yes, The Fly. (laughs) I was thinking a little classier. Okay. I won't say no to any Gina Davis movies. I like her. I will say, I've mentioned this before, but when I used to walk around Tower Records and we used to look at the funny porn names, do you know a porn name of a movie you just mentioned? Do you know what the parody uh, porn film was? Which movie? The, The wrong one. Earth Girls Are Easy? Yeah. I mean, what would the porn parody be? It could just be the exact same title. It's close. Earth Girls Are Sleazy? That's it. Oh, geez. (laughs) Yes, but, um, you know, I I will say that this film... It has flaws. It's not perfectly done. I think the Jason Bourne films are better, but it's a really cool, intriguing story. Not as good as Jason Bourne, but if you like that series and you want to satisfy the Jason Bourne itch, and of course, you know, there's twists and it's a a female protagonist. uh, I think there's a lot going on for this film that makes it fun. So I do think that this film stands the test of time. But what about you, Al? Uh, I know you selected this film. Did it hold up uh, this time watching it? So there are some things in this movie that don't stand the test of time beyond what we've already talked about. There's a reference to Baywatch Nights at one point. It was like, I have something to show you. It's really disturbing. I know. I've seen Baywatch Nights. I'm like, okay, that joke doesn't really land anymore. Do you remember what Baywatch Nights was, though? Yeah, it was like the Baywatch spinoff, except they were detectives or something? No, I think it was like supernatural. It was like a notoriously bad show. And Baywatch was never known to be a good show. But I think like David Hasselhoff's character was like at night hunting down werewolves like in the in the Baywatch beaches and stuff. It was really weird. I never watched it, but I remember of it. I thought he was just like hunting down murderers at night, but also it's werewolves with a V, not werewolves with an F. Uh, yeah. They also make a reference to, what is this, America's Funniest Practical Videos? It wasn't exactly America's Funniest Home Videos. Like that was the joke they were making, but they had to change it. It was an obvious reference to America's Funniest Home Videos, which isn't even a thing anymore. So you wouldn't get what it's parodying. I thought it was a thing. Still, I thought. It- I mean, I think it's one of those. It's technically a thing. Yeah, uh, but things like that are there, and the whole like anger about the government spending too much money on health care. <laughs> I just don't understand. We don't spend enough on. We it. don't spend enough on health care. Like, why well, we spend way too much on it. But like, uh, you know, we, we spend more than like I think the next like five nations combined. But if you break your leg, you'll go bankrupt in this country, right? Like that is just so weird, and like that just doesn't work at all. But I think a lot of this movie does work really well. I think the fact that other than that opening voiceover, they don't hold your hand with a lot of the exposition. And there's like these throwaway lines of like, oh, Charlie, she was our operative in chapter. 
And then no one says the word chapter again for another like 10 minutes where they say chapter was a secret government organization, blah, 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 blah. And like, you kind of have to be paying attention. And I like that. And I think it is a smart movie. Is the screenplay worth $4 million? I don't know. But I do like the idea of like a thinking action movie where it's not just guns and explosions. There is a plot and it is clever and it's smart. And because the lead is a woman, there's like a lot of like feminism in this movie that's not like beat you over the head with it, like preachy. You know, like when Sam and Mitch are like driving and Mitch sees like a woman jogger and he like hoots at her and then Sam like takes a minute to lecture him on like how stupid that is. I think that's kind of cool. Like they lean into it in like a a way that feels authentic. Um, There is a thing where like the bad guys keep calling her a bitch, which is like, okay, they're bad guys. And then there's one part where Mitch also calls her a bitch. And I was like, oh, they shouldn't have done that. It's Samuel L. Jackson. I know, but they should have like differentiated and because it, it, he doesn't need to. It's a stupid line of like, you're supposed to shoot those bad guys. Isn't that what a bitch like you is good for? Like, he doesn't need to say it. Like, they're friends at that point. You could be like, isn't that what you're good at? It's unnecessary. And it kind of just like threw me there. I was like, oh, they, they shouldn't have done that. I mean, Samuel L. Jackson says that line. It's Samuel L. Jackson. When he says motherfucker, it's not the same as when anyone else says motherfucker. I know. I felt like they were doing a good job of like delineating who are the good guys and who are the bad guys and what they were saying and how they approached women. And they just messed it up right there. I think. <laughs> Whatever. It's a, it's a small like ding on the movie. I agree with what you're saying. I mean, I do agree with it. I'm just saying I didn't notice it probably because it's Samuel L. Jackson. That's fair. That's totally fair. I'm also reminded of something that a friend of the show recently wrote on Instagram. Our friend Jason Torres, uh, who you remember was on our Last Dragon and True Romance episodes. Hi, Jason. Hi. And, uh, you know, you always correct me. Uh, it's mispronounced. It's instant Graham. No, that is not correct. Uh, but after the Escape from New York episode, he wrote a comment that Snake should have been like a major franchise character and he should have had like so many sequels and action figures and video games. Like he's such a cool character and that's not what happened with Snake Plissken. I was thinking that about this movie. Like Charlie and Mitch, I would have watched another 10 movies with them. If they go on like other adventures and there's more with her and she's like living her retired life but then she gets pulled back in and she has to go and fight some other bad guy and mitch comes along too i would have been in for that and you know the four million dollar screenplay did you read how it ended the screenplay oh mitch dies uh yes it said mitch dies and the test audience didn't like it so he lives but um the screenplay itself ends with a note from shane black that the sequel is called the kiss after lightning which is an equally terrible title which tells you nothing about the film i would actually say that's a worse title because the long kiss goodnight is terrible don't get me wrong but at least that's like kind of something that maybe a human being might say it's not like a common expression but like the long kiss goodnight okay i know what a long kiss goodnight is but what kiss after lightning like what the fuck is that yeah oh i mean i I know what a kiss goodnight is i don't know what a long kiss goodnight is but i agree that it's at least better than a kiss after lightning which is what right 
But I think there is franchise potential here. I think it is a shame that nothing happened with that. And it's a shame what happened with Gina Davis's career. I love Gina Davis. I think she's awesome. And it sucks that she was making these movies with her husband and two of them in a row bombed. That really, really stinks. But I really enjoyed this movie. I really enjoyed revisiting it. I hadn't watched it in many, many years. I think it's awesome. I think it definitely stands the test of time. Also, we did mention that it takes place at Christmas time. So I'm totally going to use that the next time someone says like, what's your favorite Christmas movie? Is it Elf or A Christmas Story? And then like the smart ass says, actually, mine is Die Hard or Gremlins. Usually that smart ass is me. But now I'm totally going to say The Long Kiss Goodnight. That's a great Christmas movie. Because it all takes place at Christmas time. I agree. You are that kind of person now. <laughs> I totally am. But this is a good one to add to that list. I think this movie does stand the test of time. But, you know, while we were comparing this movie to James Bond, there is a James Bond movie that is actually really for real this time, I think, coming to theaters, No Time to Die. And in honor of that movie, we are going to review three older James Bond movies. And we're going to start things off next week with Thunderball. After that, we'll do Moonraker and then Goldeneye. Three different James Bonds, three weeks in a row. Don't miss those episodes. We're going to have a great time. In the meantime, as always, we want you to talk to us. We are at Test of Time Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Write us something. And we'll see you next time, everybody. Bye.